But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us from Poland is Sabine Folk. She is a research fellow at the EU H2020's Fatigue Project at the University of Krakow, as well as a doctoral fellow at the Centre for the Analysis of the Radical Right and a researcher at Now Time Us Space. Thanks for joining us, Sabine. Hi, thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about what the Fatigue Project is? So the Fatigue Project is an international EU-funded research project that brings together six universities, five out of which are in Central and Eastern Europe, and our coordinator is the University College in London. And it brings together 15 young PhD researchers that all try to explain in their dissertations the recent rise of populism and far-right politics in Central and Eastern Europe. And within that project, I produce, let's say, the westernmost case study because I work on Eastern Germany and the recent upsurge in far-right politics there. What was it that started you looking into this stuff? I did a master's program in European studies a couple of years ago, and I was very intrigued by the notion of European identity and saw it as a very yeah, helpful and, and hopeful concept to overcome nationalism in Europe. And when I was asked to write a term paper about this concept of European identity, I was looking for a good study case. And what I actually found in the media and public discourses at the time was that European identity was, was very, very much propagated by far-right actors. And at that time, that was the Pegida movement. So it's a German far-right movement from Dresden in Eastern Germany that considers uh, itself as patriotic Europeans. So the E in Pegida stands for, for Europe, actually. Yeah, this quite surprising finding that the contemporary far-right actually does not identify as nationalism, but much with the idea of Europe and the concept of European civilization. And this is what got me started in this. Is there also a left-wing alternative to this conceptualization? Of European identity? Yeah, sure. And I guess the left wing is traditionally the transnational actor within Europe. Yeah. And there are really great projects of left wing transnational alternative to European contemporary and real existing European integration. Some examples might be uh, Janis Varoufakis' uh, DiEM25 project as a alternative transnational European project. And I also really believe in, in the idea forwarded by German-French researcher and author and public scholar uh, called Ulrike Giraud, who has developed the idea of a, of a European Republic of Citizens. How, how is this distinct from an institution like the European Union? Do the right and the left offer alternative visions of Europe? And how does the EU fit within this framework? Well, the right-wing w- vision of Europe is somehow complex because the the contemporary far-right 
rejects real existing European integration in the context, in, in the form of the EU, of the European Union, because of their the supranational take on Europe that nation states shall be overcome. What the far right, however, really supports in terms of Europe is the idea of a European civilization that is built on values such as Christianity, on a common European heritage. And according to me, far-right actors would not say that, but according to me, it comes down to a white national, a white European identity. The far-right conceptualizes Europe mostly in ethnic and ethnic terms, yeah, as a, as a civilization built in a common history. And the left, on the other hand, has a much more civic and much more open, much more liberal conception of Europe and European identity as a community of citizens that is also open to newcomers yeah, and open to, to refugees and to immigrants from all over the world. Real existing European integration is again something very different yeah, because it is a, was a quite pragmatic project that grew out of the situation in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s the beginning of the Cold War, when on the one hand, peace was the was a priority to, to create peace on, on the European continent, but also very simply to rebuild the markets that were destroyed by the war. And uh, this real existing European project, of course, builds much more on the idea of uh, a common economy, a common market and the trading of goods, rather than the idea of having citizens with equal rights all over Europe. In your writings on a group or a movement like Pegida, you've noted previously that they, they conceive of themselves or present themselves as patriotic Europeans, but they're also engaged in a struggle against what they understand to be threats to Europe, in particular Muslim immigrants to Europe. Can you explain a little bit more about what Pegida was and what it did? So first of all, Pegida still is. Yes? Pegida still exists in uh, eastern Germany in the city of Dresden. So this was, it, it had its biggest successes in 2014, 2015, in the weeks following its very foundation. Yeah. And this is a small political organization from this city in Dresden that started to organize weekly demonstrations in the fall of 2014. And um, these demonstrations grew very quickly. And in that, in the course of this rise, Pegida became much mediatized and much, dis, uh, much publicized phenomenon in, in Germany and even beyond. By now, Pegida has become Germany's largest and also longest lived far right street movement. They still take to the streets on a very regular basis. And uh, over the past six years, their topics have not changed much. So it is, uh, Pegida is about uh, opposition to immigration and to liberal immigration laws, especially for immigrants from a Muslim background and from Africa. And on the other hand, the second big topic in Pegida is the opposition to or the rejection of the current uh, political media and media elites in Germany. So they have a very strong anti-establishment discourse in Pegida and reject these elites as non-democratic and illegitimate. How is Pegida received by the media and in what ways does it utilise uh, perhaps social media to propagate its message? The emergence and rise of Pegida in 2014 and 15 really caused a huge media outrage and a huge public outrage in Germany. Yeah, That after... Several decades after the Second World War, where during which far-right ideas could not as much be publicized in the public space, suddenly there was this movement that took to the streets 
and that said all these things, yeah, that they are against immigrants, that they are on the right of the political spectrum, and that they are proud of being on the right of the political spectrum. So for a couple of weeks, the media was full of Pegida, and this caused, of course, uh, also partially the movement's success, because everybody knew about Pegida, and very quickly, all over Germany, branches of Pegida took off, that uh, always took the this uh, ending of Pegida, the Ida, they integrated in the names of their respective cities. So we had, for example, Mügida in Munich or Legida in Leipzig and so forth. But already from early, uh, early 2015 onwards, so only a couple of months after the foundation of Pegida, the media completely changed its course and stopped reporting on Pegida, at least in that, um, in this vast sense. And from then on, the media would only report on, on demonstrations that were kind of in some way outstanding because of their size or because of some violent incidents or because somebody important had been seen there. And during that time, Pegida was extremely active on Facebook. It also started off as a Facebook group by a couple of common Dresdeners who were all had, who all had not been active in, in politics uh, previously. And this Facebook group really exploded in terms of followers and in terms of discussions. And a very shocking discourse was produced there in the comments and the posts. And over the years, Pegida has maintained Facebook pages that have been repeatedly shut down by, uh, by the social uh, media administrators because of anti-immigrant and, and um, anti-elitist speech. So by now, Pegida has, I would say, mostly given up in using Facebook as its main medium to bring its supporters together and, and its main medium of communication. Today, Pegida uses its own website where it advertises its marches and it uses as a communication medium mostly Telegram. And in this, Pegida is really very typical for the entire German far right and, and all kinds of uh, protest actors in using Telegram as a platform that is not as strict, where less content gets censored in order to, yeah, to propagate ideas, mostly share content from other far right activists from Germany or from across Europe. We are still in the midst of a global pandemic. And I think it's probably fair to say that at the beginning of it, there was a fear and maybe an assumption that the far right would be able to successfully exploit the pandemic and the sort of uh, heightened contradictions that it, uh, it raised. How have the German far right fared with COVID? For the German far right, COVID has had quite has had various consequences, and it's for now it is still uh, difficult to pin down if the far right has overall benefited or from the pandemic, or if the pandemic has had detrimental effects. What we can observe quite interestingly is that we see an important actor expansion in the far right during the pandemic. So over the course of the pandemic and even quite early on already in April, we have seen this vast protest scene against lockdown. And far right actors have been part of this from the very beginning. They have not always dominated these protests that were taking place first in Berlin and Stuttgart and also later through, across the whole country. And uh, yeah, far-right actors have been active in, in the organization of these protests and have been very visible in protest. So for sure, the pandemic has given far-right actors an even bigger visibility in the entire political spectrum because, of course, most of these demonstrations were illegal or only partially legal, and the media reported vastly on uh, the actions that happened in context of these demonstrations. 
On the other hand, the, the so-called, yeah, what we can consider the established far-right scene, so the far-right actors that existed already before the pandemic in Germany, they had quite, quite a hard time to, to adjust and to find a common response to the pandemic. And due to Germany's federal system with 16 regions, one could really well observe how the established far-right just did not coordinate at all. Germany's most important far-right party, the so-called Alternative for Germany, or short AFD, they had various responses the, across the different regions, ranging from not taking lockdown serious at all, or not taking the pandemic serious at all, to calling, pushing the other parties to call for a state of emergency and shutting down the country even more. But by now, the AFD and other far-right actors have consolidated around the idea that lockdown has been, been an exaggerated measure, that it is detrimental to Germany's economy, and that therefore the governments in, in power have largely failed to deal with the pandemic. And also AFD, as the parliamentary arm of the German far-right, has over time claimed representation of these demonstrators on the streets and sees these demonstrators as part of a larger far-right movement of which they want to be the parliamentary arm. Speaking of those demonstrations, I, I guess in the past month or so, a lot of attention has been put on to the uh, January 6th storming of Washington, D.C., but uh, last year there was also a storming of the Reichstag. Could you tell us what happened there and what were the consequences of that? I would like to avoid the the term of storming the Reichstag because with this we, we really echo the language that far-right actors use and we need to be careful not to propagate their ideas by using the same language. But yes, actually in, in Germany in uh, late August 2020, on 29th August, there was somehow similar situation to what happened in the in the States in, in early January. In the context of an anti-lockdown demonstration that happened in the center of Berlin, a couple of demonstrators, a few hundred, staged an attack on the German parliament right in the center in Berlin. And in comparison to, to the US, this event was much smaller scale because they didn't manage to enter. They were already stopped while being on the stairs to this Reichstag, to the parliament. However, this event was of really high and important symbolic value for German democracy because it was the symbolically most dangerous attack on German democracy, yeah, in, in speaking speaking a symbolic language, mostly because there was a particular symbol displayed there in uh, amongst these demonstrators on the stairs towards the Reichstag. And the symbol was a, a flag with the colors uh, black, white and red, the so-called uh, Reichsflagge or a flag of the of the Reich, which uh, was used during the time of the German Empire, so in the late 19th century and early 20th century. And the symbol is now used by uh, all kinds of far right actors to express their rejection of German democracy and and Germany even as a state. This relates, of course, to the to loose organizations around the so-called sovereign citizens uh, in German Reichsbürger, so uh, people who reject and who questioned the very existence of the contemporary German Federal Republic, who claim that they are not citizens, that they do not have to comply with very basic civic duties, such as paying taxes or paying fines, etc. And these people are very dangerous. Yeah, They are maybe not so many. I think the latest number were around a bit less than 20,000 individuals in, in Germany. They are mostly yeah, quite they are individuals or small groups. 
However, many of them carry uh, weapons and they have used these demonstrations and uh, this event on 29th August as, as the culmination as a way to, to gain more symbolic power within Germany. Yeah? And we know that, that fascism really lives from, from symbols and from myth and from these from visual effect for these far-right Reichsbürger, this was really a great success in showing that uh, they they are present in, in contemporary Germany and that they are not being shut down. The Washington DC incident seemed to spark something of a backlash. Has there been a backlash from the public in response to this sort of assault on democracy as well? Yes, there was a, a huge discussion, huge societal debate about how to deal with these kind of ideas being displayed so powerfully in the very core of, of German democracy. And of course, people were extremely alarmed and, and worried of um, entering a new phase uh, comparable to the 1930s of, um, of political, um, how to put it? Upset. Yes, yes, exactly. That's it. Then there were, of course, practical debates on how to in ensure the basic security of parliamentarians. And this whole discussion was actually then even reinforced because there was uh, there were more incidents where parliamentarian security was to some extent compromised because AFD parliamentarians uh, during the winter invited uh, all kinds of visitors to the parliament building and thus even opened the door to a couple of far-right bloggers um, who then assaulted uh, democratic politicians in their in their daily work. So. There has been a big backlash against uh, against these ideas. There have been now more discussions and and having to uh, to observe these type of actors more closely. The German Office for the Protection of the Constitution, so a, a government agency that is uh, supposed to to take care of observing and uh, catching these type of uh, these far right individuals or groups has become more active in observing different branches of AFD, for example, or in, in launching more observation cases um, of different far-right actors, including maybe at some point also Pegida. We've also recently witnessed, I think, the conviction of an individual for the assassination of a German politician in 2019. Was that uh, assassination uh, understood as being part of or emanating from this same movement that uh, threatened the German parliament? Not directly, but it has been interpreted as the most violent and the most horrible expression of this rise of far-right politics in Germany. I think that this, uh, the, the assassination of this politician, uh, Walter Lücke, was the first uh, political murder committed by a far-right activist or, or, or far-right individual since, uh, since the end of the Second World War. This has been an event that changed or, or hopefully will change many things in, in Germany in realizing that the time of, of German exceptionalism is really over. I think this event of, of the political murder has been a key in, in making clear that the far right is present and it is active and it is well organized and it is dangerous and uh, it needs to be monitored much more. Yeah. You've uh, noted the presence of all the uh, reinvigoration of uh, particular symbols associated with earlier and arguably uh, archaic forms of German nationalism. At the same time, in your other writings, you've taken note of what is referred to as civilizationism, which in a sense is intended to transcend in some way these forms of uh, nationalism. 
What can you say about, I suppose, the tensions or the relationships between these kind of small-scale emergent or re-emergent nationalisms and the idea of Europe as a whole as constituting a, a form of civilization that is also under threat? Yeah, this is the, the tension uh, in which uh, far-right ideology in Germany, but I would say in, in Europe as a whole, kind of oscillates between. Yeah, On the one hand, Many of these far-right actors have a very strong idea of standing in for European civilization and for the for the well-being of European civilization, and they construct this notion usually very vaguely as a as an idea of of uh, white and Christian Europeans that share a common a common culture and a common heritage, and based on this notion, um, they seek to collaborate uh, across national borders. In, with regard to the Pegida movement, there had been this initiative to uh, build a far-right transnational alliance with all kinds of actors from across uh, Europe called Fortress Europe. And together they wanted to develop this alternative to real existing European integration in the form of a Fortress Europe that is open inside but closed towards the external borders and not letting any immigrants, especially not um, from Muslim backgrounds. And on the other hand, yes, of course, these uh, far-right actors, they have not gotten rid completely of their nationalism. In Pegida, for example, or in all kinds of uh, far-right demonstrations, events, uh, websites, we see a lot of German national symbolism, such as the flag that is displayed, or the German anthem that plays a role. And I would say that in the end, this nationalism that still exists also impedes certain forms of uh, transnational collaboration and cooperation of far-right actors uh, within Europe. And in, in the case of, of this uh, far-right Fortress Europe Alliance, founded and pushed by Pegida, uh, this was also one of the reasons why the alliance in the end only persisted for, for a couple of months and didn't uh, have any major, any major political success. Would I be right in thinking that Heert Wilders' party was a part of the uh, Fortress Europe project? According to, let's say, official Pegida sources, he was not part of this uh, of this alliance proper, maybe because this alliance was a bit somehow too grassroots and too small scale. But Gerd Wilders has been one of the most important role models for Pegida and also for other far-right uh, actors in Germany. Herr Wilders has also visited Pegida demonstrations in the past, was uh, was responsible for, for rising numbers and participation again, because, of course, he is a symbol of successful far-right populism in contemporary Europe. I guess one of the reasons I ask is because I understand that uh, several years ago, Wilders looked to Australia and uh, Fortress Australia, and in particular, uh, an advertising campaign that was produced by the Australian government, which was intended to be consumed by uh, would-be asylum seekers, construing or projecting Australia as its own fortress to which they would not gain access. And it seems as if Wilders and a number of other European uh, politicians, and of course Trump, have looked to Australia, in a sense, for uh, inspiration in terms of their own propaganda materials. Yeah, sure. On the other hand, the notion of Fortress Europe is already older. Yeah, it has already, it has roots in, in, in early 20th century political thought. And uh, even um, Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler also sold his idea of, of German-occupied Europe as a fortress Europe. 
Yeah, and he, uh, one of the parts of this uh, <laughs> crazy megalomaniac project was the uh, building of the so-called Atlantic Wall. For example, at the northern shore of France, uh, while France, uh, northern France was uh, occupied by Nazi Germany. And uh, his idea was to build a so-called fortress Europe to shield Europe from Western, so mostly from American uh, influences on, uh, on, on the Western uh, side of Europe and from so-called Bolshevik influences on the, on the Eastern side. So this notion of fortress Europe has been with Europe already for, for a long time. And I am not entirely sure to what extent current far-right actors like Pegida actually know of the historical roots of this concept. Because this concept then lived through uh, through German, uh, or at least Western German political speech and, and was had maybe maintained a quite marginal uh, life in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s. But at the latest, with the efforts of, uh, of European integration, of having a common European market and having a common European asylum system, this notion has been uh, used again by political actors then in the 1980s, mostly from the, from the left, to denounce your EU migration policy. Yeah? But now this notion, I would say, has been properly reclaimed by, by the right. The German far right looks not much to Australia, I would say, but much to, to the States, much to Donald Trump, and uh, also shares these ideas of shielding, shielding themselves themselves with walls and fences and very much in the style of, of Donald Trump's wall. Well, Sabine, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, they can do so at populism-europe.com. And you're also on Twitter at Sabine D. Folk. Uh, that's a V-O-L-K. Exactly. That's me. And I post on Twitter all my new blogs and all papers and also interesting links to, to conferences or articles. So please visit me there. Thank you. And we'll have a few more questions on the podcast version of this show, which you can find at 3cr.org.au slash yeahnapasaran or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. See you later. Sabine, I wanted to ask you a little bit about populism, mm-hmm. how you define it and, and use it in your work. One of the reasons I ask is because it's become a, a very common term used to describe quite disparate, I think, political phenomena. And I think some of the uses of that term or some of the uses of the concept can be a bit problematic. So maybe you could uh, talk about why you think populism has emerged and is is so uh, widely applied, and maybe talk about when and where you think it's applied correctly or incorrectly, and what do you think are the the consequences of this, uh, well, popularity of the term populism? Yeah, thank you so much for this interesting question. Amongst researchers on the far right, uh, to use populism or not to p- use populism, it's really a, <laughs> a, a huge debate yeah, that re- sparks a lot of controversy amongst uh, researchers on the far right. I personally do use the, the term, the concept of populism, and I think it is useful for my work, especially for my work on Pegida. I see certain problems with this, the most current uh, definition of populism, the ideational approach mostly associated with Kasmüde, but also with others, that sees populism as a, as a thin ideology. I think, although I, am not, I do not want to go against that, I think in order to study populism and to um, observe it in the empirical world, we have to conceptualize populism as a, as a discourse and as a performance. Maybe the most uh, useful approach in, in that strand of thought 
that I recently read was by Pardis Aslanidis uh, of Populism as a Collective Action Frame. And this is especially useful if we study, like me, protest movements. So populism, for me, as a very basic definition, would be a discourse and a performance that propagates the idea of the antagonism between the people and the elites. And in this context, the people take the role of a certain type of, of underdog yeah, that is oppressed by some type of corrupt or bad or illegitimate political elite. This concept is very useful when looking at Pegida in terms of what Pegida says on the streets and what it does on the streets. Yeah? Because this uh, Pegida movement has a very, a very strong identity as being a, a civic movement of not becoming a party and of not being just the street arm of a political party. Even though some scholars might say that Pegida effectively is the street arm of the AFD. It is not like that that Pegida demonstrators identify. Rather, Pegida demonstrators identify as the people. And the repertoire of organizing demonstrations is basically a means to perform the people on the streets, in this case, on the streets of Dresden, of displaying these numbers, yeah, these numbers of, of demonstrators. And at the same time, Pegida constructs populist collective action frame by framing their their overall activism as a resistance against these so-called oppressive elites yeah a popular resistance and this is a, a way this is this is a, a means that not only Pegida uses but at least in in Germany the, the far right more broadly it is a way how to mobilize supporters to demobilize uh, adversaries, And to really propagate this idea that the far right is not far right, but actually the proper democratic resistance against a quasi-totalitarian elite. I have, for example, studied Pegida's symbols uh, in, in, in terms of how Pegida uses memory. And uh, we cannot understand the use of symbols or memory if we use the notion of the far right only. We have to use this concept of populism in order to see the structure, in order to understand how, how far right actors understand the entire history of Germany or of Europe uh, more broadly as a constant struggle of the people as uh, some kind of underdog, but at the same time as pure and, and true and democratic against these illegitimate, illegitimate uh, elites. And Pegida, for example, uses then these references to uh, the peaceful revolution, so the 1989 protests that brought down or contributed to the demise of the German Democratic uh, Republic, Socialist East Germany. And Pegida uses loads of references to that time in order to claim itself the role as the, as the heir of these, uh, of this movement of, of the resistance fighters to construct this self identity of being resistance fighters and to denounce the contemporary German political establishment as less democratic than even the German democratic republic. And Pegida does uh, very similar things by using the symbolism of uh, the resistance against uh, Nazi Germany. For example, they use a flag that is uh, associated with the uh, anti-Nazi resistance from within Germany. It has become a very, um, very current uh, flag in Pegida and far-right demonstrations more broadly. And is another way how to construct this populist collective action frame of we are the true Democrats 
we are the people and we 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 are not a violent or extremist we just go as is our right against the undemocratic elites within this framework i presume that uh, muslims are understood as being incapable of being incorporated into this notion of the people is that correct yes that is that is entirely correct the opposition uh, to to immigration and hate speech against immigrants has always been a very important part of of far right actors i would say in 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 europe uh, in general and muslims and also islam as a as a religion is seen as not being compatible with Germany or with uh, Christian values. Does that suggest that there's been a shift in right-wing populism in terms of having perhaps previously, uh, in the case of Germany, expressed opposition to, say, uh, Turkish migration? That may remain, but now the emphasis is upon uh, the religious dimensions of identity as opposed to ethnic or, or national identity. Yes, I would agree with that. The opposition to to immigration has, of course, always at least two dimensions. There's always some economic aspect, the idea that uh, immigrants take away workplaces, and and so here we are with uh, with uh, the concept of nativism, which is present in in far right ideology in contemporary Germany. But I would argue that um, the idea that immigration is a threat to German national identity and also European identity is much more important. To some extent, the Turkish, uh, the, the large Turkish minority in Germany is now not really framed as a, as a big problem anymore, uh, at least not within Pegida, for example. And the biggest problem is seen with immigrants from, especially from Syria, from Iraq and from Northern Africa that are seen as a threat to, to German culture, And um, there are, of course, also gendered discourses uh, portraying these immigrants as uh, as a danger to German women and uh, all these stereotypes attached to to the Muslim man as um, as an imagined being by by the far right. And one of the things I was thinking about in reading about Fortress Europe and the concept of European civilization is your studies and, and the project that you're a part of is looking at, I guess, uh, Eastern Europe as being uh, one or the crux or the centre of this civilizationist thinking. And yet, during the course of the 20th century, I guess because of the uh, you know existence of uh, the Soviet Empire, let's call it, the, the threat was seen to emanate from the East. And yet, with the collapse of communism, some form of European integration incorporating East and West, the East is now looked to as constituting a kind of, in some sense, a purer, Uh, embodiment of European values. How, how do you understand that relationship and that history? Yeah, that is one of uh, one of the most interesting developments right now in terms of uh, also of uh, relations between Western and Eastern Europe. In my project, we take the we take the stance that although uh, far right politics are rising and getting more more um, getting stronger all over Europe. Far-right and populist politics in Eastern Europe have a, a different quality to them. They are even strong, more stronger here. Yeah, in Central and Eastern Europe, there are two countries that are governed by far-right parties: Poland and Hungary. And even within Germany, we can we can see the split that um, in Eastern Germany, the far-right is much stronger than in Western Germany. 
It is an interesting development that for a long time throughout European history, so even before before the Cold War and um, Eastern, that Eastern Europe always had to struggle in order to be recognized as as European as the West. It was always assumed that Europe is is uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe is some kind of hybrid being in between Europe and Asia. Now, however, since these countries have have regained their their national independence they are integrated in european union structures and they gain a more more stronger role in in within the the european union there is the notion here that the pure europe has only survived in the east whereas the pure europe could not survive in western europe and the main argument again is is immigration Here in, in Poland, and I also see that with my colleagues in Hungary, and I have heard that many times in my time of fieldwork in, in Eastern Germany, there is the idea that the West has already lost its identity, that it has already lost to the immigration flows. This is an argument here to, to reject Uh, accepting more refugees um, to to Eastern European countries. Yeah, the argument is to wanting to preserve not only national identity but also European identity. So for them, for for Poland, Hungary, Eastern Germany, uh, and so forth, they see themselves now as the real cradle of European uh, identity and and the defenders of European democracy and and identity as such. Do you tell us a little bit about what opposition to groups like AFD and Pegida looks like? Yeah, there are of course many uh, left wing. Uh, the, the, the opposition against uh, Pegida and AFD is of course strong, mostly organized from the left side of the political spectrum. For example, there is no Pegida demonstration without. A left-wing counter-demonstration. There are um, left-wing podcasts um, being broadcast through d- during Pegida demonstrations in order to provide some alternative uh, to the political messages that uh, Pegida sends. So, in 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 that term, opposition, of course, does exist. However. I would say that um, left-wing opposition, especially against Pegida and especially in Dresden, is really not as strong as it could be. Yeah? In Pegida's early early time, when Pegida as a label spread all over Germany and, and everywhere, small um, groups tried to, to establish themselves with regular demonstrations, just like Pegida Dresden, uh, most of these groups, or actually all of these groups, very quickly failed. And one of the key reasons was the strong left-wing opposition that many more people would take to the streets to demonstrate against Pegida or against its local branches than Pegida could actually mobilize. Now, in Dresden, this has always been different. There have been very few occasions that there have been more demonstrators, more counter-demonstrators than Pegida supporters. And uh, this is usually attributed to the to the strong conservative and traditionalist uh, mentality in that city and a comparatively weak left-wing scene. Is it correct that uh, the AFD is being placed under observation by uh, state security or is that something that has been proposed? No, the AFD is already so we are in the in we are still in the process. Um, not uh, so I cannot give a, a definitive answer. I do believe that the AFD will be observed by the by the national office of the for the protection of the constitution. Also, because uh, 
some of the AFD's regional branches, all in eastern Germany, are already being observed by the regional branches of this office for the protection of the constitution. And uh, yeah, just this morning, I got the message that now uh, the Saxon uh, AFD is being observed. And what what is what has led to that? The AFD has the AFD was founded in 2013 as a, a neoliberal uh, party, mostly interested in economic interests and mostly interested in in rejecting the euro politics of Chancellor Angela Merkel. Then over time, the the AFD has been so once been taken over by the by a far right branch. Uh, which existed in already since the since the beginning of the party, but wasn't the dominant one. By now, the far right uh, wing of the party is the only one that that remains. Let's say, and uh, the AFD has produced loads of political sc- scandals over the past couple of months and years. It has uh, AFD politicians have shown themselves with far right activists. For example, from Pegida, but also from other far-right organizations, AFD politicians have given speeches that uh, were accused of rebel rousing and that clearly went against uh, the ideals of of, um, German democracy, civil rights and constitutionality. The process of, of proposing for the National Party to be observed has also much to do with recent decisions to observe regional uh, party branches and also a couple of individuals. The AFD has quite a high number of politicians or some of them by now pal- former uh, members that previously to their AFD membership have been in, uh, let's say, properly far-right extremist neo-Nazi organizations. And supposedly this goes against um, the AFD internal membership laws. However, of course... <laughs> They would not always really respect these laws themselves. Yeah? So a couple of members have been excluded from the party. And a couple of uh, members um, some years ago founded a, a faction, a party faction called The Wing, which was the main producer of properly far-right ideology within the AFD. Eastern German AFD politicians were also leading figures here. And uh, the so-called uh, The Wing was clearly a far-right extremist and was dissolved after the federal office for the protection of the constitution decided to observe the wing. And in that context, the the AFD uh, national representatives tried to claim to to resolve that uh, that wing. But of course, this ideology does not disappear just because the organizational structures are officially dissolved. Yeah. There's been a a number of different scandals and controversies within Germany regarding the German state's uh, capacity to monitor and to intervene in these circumstances. I'm thinking about the uh, you know potential scandals surrounding the NSU and also more recently revelations that particular German army units have had a presence of a, a neo-Nazi and uh, far-right elements that have been uh, alarmingly strong, I suppose. What's the current state of discussion about the relationship between uh, officers of the German state and the far-right? 
Yeah, this is true. It is a huge problem because this uh, this government agency very often did not work efficiently and was not able to prevent. You mentioned the NSU murders, but also in in the context of even of the the political murder of of Walter Lübcke, far right extremists they were known to uh, to this government agency, and still uh, these crimes have not been been prevented. I would say that now in 2021, after these scandals, there is a higher level of publicly uh, demonstrated uh, determination to to change something. However, it is not yet enough. Now, um, the German government has uh, very recently funded a new, let's say, task force against uh, for for the fight against uh, far right extremism. And this task force is uh, constituted only of established white uh, politicians. It doesn't, for example, doesn't include the the actual victims of far right uh, far right attacks. So uh, I guess Germany could can still do much more. But um, at least it seems that now the the problem is is uh, the issue is really problematized and publicly debated. And uh, one final question, Sabine, relates to the topic of uh, anti-Semitism because uh, PEGIDA and uh, various other groups seem determined to identify the Muslim as being the uh, unwelcome guest. However, there's also, in the case of the NSU and and other far-right or extreme-right groupings within Germany elsewhere in Europe, uh, anti-Semitism seems to um, be present and occasionally find expression. I wonder what's your assessment of the degree to which those um, older forms of uh, prejudice inform the contemporary uh, far right in Europe? Um, it is true that anti-Semitism for the German far right plays a, a smaller role now than it used to do, of course, and and. To some extent, one, one could claim that Muslims as a group demonized by far-right actors have to some extent replaced Jews. Yeah? Far-right actors such as Pegida or AFD as well, they even display their, their support for Israel, for example, very openly. So in Pegida demonstrations, you will usually also see one or two uh, flags of, of the state of Israel. At the same time, anti-Semitism is not gone in Germany, of course, and it still uh, plays its role in, in far-right ideology. There have been uh, there has been a relative upsurge in uh, even in uh, anti-Semitic crimes. There has been an attack that um, uh, there has been an attack on a synagogue in, in Halle in eastern Germany um, uh, recently, and. Anti-Semitism is now again much more on, on on the political agenda, and it has also played a bigger role now um, in the context of the pandemic and the anti-lockdown uh, demonstrations. There have been conspiracy theorists of uh, the Jews being, uh, being basically responsible for all of this again in Germany. So this is one of the most worrying facts as well. Over over the course of the pandemic. And visually, maybe anti-Semitism in, in the public space is now mostly a visual and, and symbolically performed uh, ideology. For example, many of these lockdown demonstrators would wear 
uh, star, so uh, David star, as uh, Jews were forced to to wear in in Nazi Germany, with the with the inscription "Non vaccinated." Yeah. So this is, of course, they this is uh, they compare themselves as people who oppose the the vaccination against Corona. Uh, they they compare their status in Germany with the status of Jews during Nazi Germany, and maybe these uh, individuals and groups who display these kind of symbols, maybe they just really believe that it's a clever way not to express their their opposition to German politics. But it is clearly an anti it, it clearly carries anti-Semitic content. And also very well resonates with some of the speeches that are given in the context of these demonstrations. Well, Sabine, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. This was quite something.
Herzen sind die Geister, die wir riefen. Und das weiß auch jedes Kind. Geister kann man nicht erschießen. For years, our government has subjected people seeking asylum to torturous conditions. The Minister for Home Affairs was supposed to care for them, but instead they suffered enormous physical and psychological harm. Now, those refugees are fighting for accountability and justice. On their behalf, the National Justice Project is taking legal action against the government for negligence and for breaching their duty of care. To support 50 asylum seekers in their fight for justice against the Minister for Home Affairs, please donate at justice.org.au. The National Justice Project is a 3CR supporter. <laughs>